Listener Production. We're the smiley face made out of chocolate chips and your fluffy weekend pancakes. It's Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast. Yes, this is All Day Breakfast. We usually stick to the comedy on this show. Um, if you, I'll tell you what, if you want some news... Tom Tilly hosts incredible daily podcast called The Briefing, where only the biggest news hounds in Australia are asked occasionally to join. <sighs> and today, you're going to be hearing one basset hound himself, Mr. Matt O'Kine, on The well, Weekend Briefing. Look, I know that we, all this week we've been talking about the times that um, Alex Dyson and I go and, uh, and you know... Um, uh, get a rendezvous, I should say, with other podcasts yep. um, behind closed doors. But uh, also our producer, Bron, has a, um, you know, extra marital podcast affairs. Bron. And uh, the, the weekend briefing is one of the um, one of the side pieces that Bron keeps. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is good for so- me because she kindly invited me on. Wait, so you were so... So wait, Bron, you tried to get Matt O'Kite. That's the easiest guest you can get for the weekend briefing. <laughs> it was very handy. Very, very handy. Yeah, I don't even want to know who dropped out uh, <laughs> to do it. But Did you I get the call really earlier that day? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, quick, Jamila's on the phone right now. Can you do it? Um, no, but look, it was a really great chat. And yeah, you know, we, we do, I mean, you know, Alex Dice and I have talked about Be Real, the popular new app, but sometimes we, we do get real. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's a little bit of a real chat involved in uh, my chat with Jamila, who's behind such a great podcast and uh, yeah, doesn't shy away from asking serious questions. So sit back and enjoy it on this Thursday afternoon while Alex Dyson and I take a little break, but only for a couple of days longer. We'll be back next week. Enjoy me on the briefing. This is just the start. Everyone ready? Let's get this show on the road. Let's go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Matt and Alex, all day breakfast. Matt O'Kine is very much one of the boys. He is one half of Matt and Alex's All Day Breakfast, a former Triple J presenter, comedian, author and actor. But he is also reflective and thoughtful, kind and thoroughly wise for his 36 years. Racism always hides behind an excuse or an action. It's very hard to catch racism because a lot of racists have been practising their whole life. So Mm. they know how to get away with it. When we sat down for this chat, I wasn't sure what to expect from the guy who always has a quick, funny one-liner. Matt surprised me, speaking about everything from his experience of racism, growing up without his mum, and the challenges of becoming a parent himself. I go out a lot. I like doing stuff a lot with my daughter. And we play games. It's so silly. My name is Jamila Rizvi, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Here is my conversation with Matt O'Kine. Matt O'Kine, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It is so lovely to see you. Thanks for having me, Jamila. uh, We've had you on our show as well, Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast, so it's nice to be chatting to you here. And I've actually spent some time listening to you and Alex more than usual while I've been stalking you, learning about your life, and I was listening to a chat that the two of you had about the Black Lives Matter protests last year. And I'm going to be that weird person who quotes you to you, but I'll paraphrase slightly. You said at one point that to many people, they think that the only kind of racism that counts is that really vulgar racism, Mm -hmm. not 
systemic or embedded racism that is harder to pinpoint. I wanted to start by asking, have you ever been subject to that more vulgar racism? Um, it hasn't happened to me a lot recently. Um, I mean, there's certainly jokes and things that people sort of say every now and then that you go, well, that's not right. Um, but no one specifically abused me on a bus, you know, and that yeah. seems to be the only time it gets in the news. What is it about public transport? I know, right? I used to make it, I used to joke about it. Well, the way that I kind of used to see it, and I, and I used to talk about it in my, in my stand-up, is that, you know, I feel like racism is a drug that people can really get addicted to. Mm. Um, and it, I feel like it's a drug because I think it really makes people feel better about their own situation. It gives them an excuse mm. and puts the frustration and the fear and the self-loathing that they have on themselves and places that on other people. It's like stealing someone else's happiness, you know. If you see someone else succeeding, you want to sort of take that away because you feel like you're not succeeding in yourself. It's really the only kind of justification that I ever see for racism. I, I, I can't imagine anyone who's genuinely happy and complete within themselves to feel an outward sort of hatred for someone of, of anyone else, really, of anyone else who isn't directly harming them. Yeah, I, I, my family are um, Indian Muslim and I think for the most part as a kid, either I didn't experience racism or I didn't realise mm. and it wasn't till I was about 15 and September 11 happened that suddenly it felt like the world hated people in my family. Mm. <laughs> it felt very in my face all the time. And it definitely came from a place of fear and insecurity. As you say, it didn't come from a place of people who were comfortable. Yeah, there's so many moments that stick out to me that are such obvious examples of the way that systemic racism kind of brainwashes you when you're when you're a younger person and you don't mm. have the same color skin as everyone else what are those examples that stick out you know the dialogue around immigration mm. and in particular people like Pauline Hansen what they were saying about immigrants and what immigrants were doing to our country was so present in the media uh, in politics and i remember asking my mum whether my dad was an immigrant when she said that he was, I remember feeling this like deep feeling of shame about having that in my family and having that in my blood almost. It's, it's, it's really, I get upset when I think about it, you know, and I, and I, and I got upset when I said it on the, our own podcast and I still feel upset about it now and I don't think I'll ever stop feeling upset about that. To have things that happen in our media and in our society that we can make kids feel embarrassed about their parents and who they are, like yeah. disregarding the fact that my dad has worked incredibly hard to move to Australia, set up a life, work for the government, fixing kids' teeth for 20, 30 years, and yet I'm ashamed of him because he's an immigrant. It's just, it's disgusting. You know, I remember putting a photo of myself on my resume uh, when I was looking for a part-time job when I was 18 because I wanted employers to make sure that they knew that I wasn't that black, you know, that yeah. that they had nothing to worry about by employing me. And I mean, that's like, I wanted them to see me as a person so that so they wouldn't just see a name. I did that because that is <laughs> statistically 
a fact. Yeah. That you get judged by your name, by prospective employers, and you will not get the job. And I think the research shows that employers tend to hire people like them, you know, because all of us like people who are like us because we think we're all right, right? And if you've got a number of employers and you've got corporations and government, not-for-profit, whatever it is, who are all their upper echelons who are doing the hiring decisions are dominated by white people, then you're going to see that start to come out even when people don't think they're explicitly discriminating. Mm. But, you know, I also get the concern as well. Like, I don't know whether you're going to chop and change the order of this conversation, but there's immediately even still a concern that because we've started talking about racism, people are going to switch off, Yeah, you know? And that's something that really is disheartening as well because like anyone, I don't want to keep talking about it. I don't want to keep hearing about it. You know, it sucks. It's not something that makes me feel good, especially to talk about it. Not something that makes anyone feel good hearing about it. And the fear that I get is that you op- we open up a conversation about racism because it's something that we've both experienced and the people who have never experienced it go, well, this is just going to be another whinge and then they turn it off. And unfortunately, there's a really good chance that they miss everything else that we encompass as human mm-hmm. beings and uh, have achieved and think about and care about because of that particular topic. So it's, it's, it's something that I'm just endlessly trying to figure out how to actually keep an audience engaged while making statements that matter. Mm. Uh, you know, I've spent my entire career doing it, just waiting for the right moment to just slip something in so that it actually makes an impact. And I cop heaps of flack for that, that I'm not political enough or that I'm somehow too white, you know, to, to black audiences and to, to um, black members of the community that I'm somehow too white. But I just want to make sure that when I make a point, I'm not preaching to the choir yeah. and that I'm actually hopefully tipping people over the edge from thinking one thing just to slightly seeing it a different way. You got people who are vocal, who are really vocal, and they are out there on Twitter every day fighting people, calling out every single thing that there's the slightest microaggression, the slightest thing of racism, and they're, and they're constantly just getting attacked by people, you know, the right-wingers, and, and, and it, they, they put themselves on the front line. And I'm extremely thankful for those people because I don't have the same kind of soldier in the trenches mentality of just wanting mm. to make sure that the fight is is always being fought, you know. It's sometimes if you're not standing up there on the front line with them, you get made to feel like your contribution is useless. And it feels really frustrating because not everyone fighting a war can be on the front line with a machine gun just spraying bullets at every single thing that threatens them. You've got to have people who stand back. You've got to have someone cooking the food and cleaning the mess hall and stuff like that. You've got to have people operating on the helicopters. So we're all fighting the same fight and that is to not want racism to be a thing and to be accepted and for a diverse Australia to be embraced. And so, yeah, to get it from both sides sometimes is really kind of upsetting. Yeah, that's hard. I also think, you know, in your your analogy of being on the front line, I think there are also the people that have to negotiate for peace, right? And yeah. they're the ones who can't afford to be purely idealistic because- yeah. 
peace requires compromise. We need we need all those people to get somewhere. And thank you for letting me open with a conversation about race. For me, I hope everyone hasn't turned off. I hope you're still listening, everybody. I don't think we talk about race enough in Australia. And I think as a result, we get really fired up when we do and people overreact and we're not good at having a civilised conversation because we just haven't had any practice. Well, I mean, I got slammed by people of colour last year for um, somewhat defending Josh Thomas's statements about casting people of colour in his show or the process of casting on on a panel. And because I defended what Josh had said, it was just like I was this huge traitor to people of colour in the film industry. When, you know, I've been in this industry for 20 years now, almost, I've spent my whole life trying to make it. I understand fully well how difficult it is and how biased it is and all of the hurdles a person of colour has to get off, especially when I started in 2003. Yeah. There was barely any brown people on TV, of none, you know? And so to get criticised for defending what really comes down to the semantics of what Josh was saying. So for anyone who doesn't understand, know what Josh was saying, Josh was kind of saying it gets really difficult when you're, when you're trying to cast a person of colour or he's trying to cast diverse in a TV show. And he used a really bad example and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a completely stereotypical and, and poorly judged example of saying if you've got a TV show where the character is a convenience store worker, do you cast someone who is Indian or something like that because there are a lot of Indian or uh, subcontinental people who work in the convenience stores around where I live, where he lives? Or do you say, well, I'm not going to do that to try and prove a point to cast elsewise? Now, that's a really poor example, but what it came down to is a difference between diverse casting and diverse storytelling. Yeah. And what you have is... You have storytelling where the race and ethnicity and culture that a character has is crucial to the plot line of a show. Therefore, that is actually written into the script. The character has to be of a certain background. But diverse casting should be anyone. It should be anyone at all. But because those two worlds are very difficult for people who don't understand the process, then it suddenly gets very confusing and people get very angry about it and they're saying, no, well, he should have had an Indian character that was Indian in the show that wasn't just a convenience store worker. And then it's like, well, yes, he should have, but then is it going to be about being Indian? Do do they have the writers to back that up? What sort of authenticity are they going to bring to that? Can you make sure that that every other character around them is authentic and supported? He should be able to do all that, but then is is Josh Thomas writing an Indian show or should we be getting people with Australian Indian backgrounds to be writing a show as well? And then who's going to produce that? And then it should be going all the way to the top. And then why don't we look at the networks? And why don't we look at everyone in the whole process? And so it gets so micro-focused on someone saying one thing when when you stop looking at the, then you don't look at the big picture. And the big picture is it's going to take a long time to change And we all need to step back and go, hey, how do we collectively make a difference instead of going after one person for saying one thing? That is beautifully explained and I think draws a picture of the complexity of these conversations, right, and how much they overlap and how much they move us on to one thing and then another thing. Something that caught my attention when you were speaking just then is that you grew up without a lot of role models on TV who were people of colour. I think you and I are about the same age and so that, that was certainly my experience. They say that you can't be what you can't see. 
So what made you want to do the career that you've got and chase comedy and chase television and chase radio when you didn't see people who looked like you doing those things? Well, I, I started comedy to get on TV. So I actually started acting. I wanted to be an actor and I realised that it was going to be very difficult to get cast in anything that wasn't a tiny role or, you know, the convenience store worker or the best friend of a best friend of someone. Yeah. And so I started doing stand-up comedy so that I could put myself in front of audiences and people could then familiarise themselves with me and then I could go back over into the acting world. And it just so happened that I love stand-up and I have kept doing it ever since, although I've, you know, recently sort of stopped since all the COVID thing and I don't know if I'll go back to it. My partner showed my daughter the old banana ad. Because she started singing the song and my partner was like, oh, look, I'll show you the ad. And then we went downstairs and Belle put on the ad for my daughter Sophia and we all watched it. And then Belle started like tearing up and she was like, I just realised that there's no not a single brown person on that ad. And there's so many people in that ad. Like there's so many kids, there's adults, everything. And she was like, there wasn't, I didn't see anyone that looked like our daughter on that ad. And then she was like, it must've been really sad for you growing up, not seeing any one that looked like you. But she'd never thought about it until that moment. And she's, you know, almost 40 years old now. So all of this stuff takes time and it's like, I wish it would change overnight. God, I wish it would change overnight. But it's not going to. And I think expecting the world to change overnight, and I'm really supportive of the people who want it to change overnight and who are pushing for it to change overnight, but I think also it sets, it sets yourself up for disappointment because it's going to take a long process and, it, and it's really about educating the people in the next generation so that none of our kids ask their parents whether their parent is an immigrant and feel ashamed about that. What kind of dad are you? (laughs) I try to involve myself as much as possible. I go out a lot. I like doing stuff a lot with my daughter and we play games. It's so silly. You know, the acting degree helps. There's a lot of... um, (laughs) There's a lot of play. Accepting offers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I can do the sort of play stuff well. It's very... it's, It's... so ridiculous. You know, we've been playing this game recently when my daughter wakes up at 6.30 in the morning and me and my partner just want to go to sleep and lie in bed for a while. But my daughter's two and a half years old and she has this toy that she pretends is a handbag, is a, is a luggage bag, and she says, all right, everyone, we're flying to Ballina now. And then so we have to get up out of bed and pretend that we're flying to Ballina and we, <laughs> me and my partner, we roll our suitcases through the hallway into her room and then we sit on the couch and we pretend it's a plane and we're flying to Ballina and we look at things out the window and it's 6.30. I just want to go back to bed. You know, I, yeah. I'm, so, I'm dying. It's like, could we but, fly business class so we can lie <laughs> yeah. out? And then one of us has to be on in the trolley pretending to be like handing out drinks and stuff and it's like those are the moments that I love and that I guess you do because you, you won't get to do those things again. So... I try to say yes as much as possible. How do you make parenting work with paid work? How does that fit together for you? I think, I, I suppose I'm asking outside of COVID times, especially when you've got travel and big demands. COVID was a blessing in disguise for, for me personally. It meant that I could stop yeah. for a bit. 
Um, and I mean, I, I still get pent up and I still like, I, you know, I definitely overwork, I, I think. I'm still working most nights writing scripts and writing things and, um, and during the days I'm recording podcasts and filming things and I never really stop. It's what I just love doing. I was going to be away every weekend for I think 15 weeks in a row Ooh. just before COVID hit. And for part of those weeks I'd be away for the full week. When COVID hit, everything cancelled, all my tours, everything, and I just felt suddenly relief, like I could stop. And so I was home and so I could go to the playground with Sophia and I could do swimming classes with her and I, can, and I drop her off at daycare and I pick her up from daycare and I go into her bedroom at night if, if she wakes up and I wasn't going to be able to do any of those things for like a long time. So it really gave me some good perspective and I'm thankful for it. But I also say that knowing full well that I was in a financial situation where I could still be employed and it didn't, you know, I have also, I have friends who didn't work for 18 months and mm. I didn't have that situation. So I'm, I'm grateful. You are someone who is relentless with both your output and also the scope of the work that you're doing. You're working across mediums and as you say, catching up at night after doing radio in the day. Where does that drive come from? Does it, does it come from your upbringing? Does it come from your parents? I don't know, but, you know, my dad has recently sort of said a couple of times, like, he's like, you know, do it now while you still can, while you've still got the energy. And I can feel the energy going, you know, as I get older. <laughs> it's it's like, body. yeah, it's like, you know, I, I, my back hurts when I sneeze now, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I can just feel the energy going. Um, and so I just say yes to most things, but only the things that I want to do, you know, and that I think will be fun and that I think my daughter will like, that I think the people that have supported me will appreciate and like. I'm not worried about failing. I used to be really scared of releasing something. Like I I released a hip hop album, you know, an EP, five tracks. I spent a year working on it and it got to the point where I was like, look, is this gonna change the world of hip hop? Absolutely not. And, but back in the day, I would have just put it on the shelf and I would have listened to it like I've done with plenty of other releases, plenty of other songs, and I would never have let anyone listen to it because it's that fear of being criticised that people are going to be like, oh, you suck, you're stupid for even trying. And the more I, the older I get, the more I'm just like, if I die, will I be more grateful that I just put this out there, that it existed in the world, or would I be happier if it just sat on a shelf? And 99% of times I think that. I'm almost positive that I'd prefer to have just tried and put it out there and it not, and you know, and no one's, barely anyone's listened to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just sitting there on Spotify doing nothing and that's fine. I still see it as a success because it exists over something that doesn't exist. That's when you fail, when you do, when you're a creative, if you're a musician, you don't make music or you don't perform, that's failing. It's not doing it and, and it not being received well. Is it true that you almost turned down the Triple J breakfast gig? Oh, yeah. Tell me about that because I can't wrap my head around. There are moments when you catch the Matrix out, right? <laughs> One instance, I remember driving with Ursula Carlson um, in Perth and we saw a plane in the sky that was not moving, right? Now, <laughs> that was, okay. we, both, we were both like, that, did you see that? The plane was, I swear to God, it was not moving. Now, I know that there was angles that we were probably going around a corner and it was flying in a certain angle and whatever. It wasn't moving. But that moment sticks out to me as like, 
Glitch in the Matrix, right? Okay, it's very sure. silly, but I I'm but I'll take with it. You. The other time is when I got arrested uh, outside a bar one night because my friend was getting evicted from the pub. I asked them not to kick him out. And then the bouncer said, well, then you'll go. You're going out. And I said, I'm not going out. I'm not, I didn't do anything wrong. And then he started dragging me out physically. And then so I resisted. We got into a physical fight. Um, and then he choked me out and on Far the out. dance floor. I woke up and got taken outside by the manager and the manager said, okay, get out of here, go. Now, as I was about to leave, the bouncer from inside tackles me to the ground and decides to make a citizen's arrest on me, right? So he then starts like squashing me on the ground to the point where I couldn't breathe anymore. And I remember thinking that I was going to die. And the little part of me that does believe in the matrix thinks that I did die that night and that I got a reset, right? So that's a second time. And the third time is when I said yes to Triple J because I don't remember it. I don't remember it at all. You don't remember saying yes or you don't no. remember getting the offer? I remember I was driving along City Road in Sydney towards Broadway and I was driving past Victoria Park on my left and I remember thinking vividly, crystal clear, when I get home, I am going to call up Ollie Wards, who had offered me a job at Triple J, and say thanks, but no thanks. I can't do it. I'm going to try and make it in the UK. I'd met, I'd just been nominated for a big award over there uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I was meeting up with these big agents. I was testing for TV shows. I was like, I'm just going to go over there. I remember driving home saying, I'm just, I'm going to tell them no when I get home. When I get home, I'm going to call them up and tell them no. Next thing I remember, I'm doing Triple J. I have no recollection of the decision-making process that led to that. I, I just, I can't remember what happened. It's so strange, but it was the best decision that I've ever not made. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that is wild. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know what happened. And eventually I was doing it. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I said yes was because I wanted to stay home to make sure that my relationship, you know, that I wasn't traveling so much, that I yeah. could strengthen my relationship. But then it, you know, turned out four months later that my partner had been cheating on me with my best friend. We'd all been living together at one point. It was a really sad and unfortunate breakup. And then I was in this job that I had taken to, you know, to strengthen the relationship that's, which didn't exist anymore. And the job kind of, I dare say, saved my life in a way. We just went on a real roller coaster, didn't we? And it started with a plane in the sky that wasn't moving. And I was a bit I was a bit suspect about it. And then I was moved and then I was uplifted. There was a lot that just happened there. Matt, tell me about being black and chicken and chips and tell me about writing for you. So the book is about a twelve year old boy who's trying to start high school while his mum dies of cancer. And that is very much based on events that took place in my life. Um, my mum died when I was twelve. And revisiting some of those moments and situations were quite, I don't know, it's confronting and liberating and exciting and painful all at once. There's a truthness to it that I really appreciate the chance that I have to be able to sort of tell stories. 
Yeah. People kind of, you know, they, they, they sort of put it into two categories of, oh, well, you're sort of telling stories about your own life. It's kind of very self-indulgent. And it is sort of in a way, but also it's really just to, I don't know, replicate the human experience on a, on a page and just let people sort of see who I am, which is a really flawed human being, and that any sort of that there's no right or wrong. So often there is no right or wrong in, in the things you do or who you are. One of my favourite passages from the book is when my character comes home one night after school and discovers his mum collapsed in the shower. I think I always come back to that moment because that happened to me. So my mum had told me that she had a headache and she, you know, sort of just started to be at home sick for a couple of days. You know, she stopped going to work. And then suddenly I, I was just kind of living my life around it while yeah. she was kind of not leaving her bed and not leaving her room. And I was just sort of going to school and cooking myself dinner and stuff like that just because she was sort of sick. She always sort of had headaches, so it wasn't a big deal. But suddenly two weeks go by and you realise like, I remember I'll never forget that like the dishes hadn't been done and it was just so not like her to just have all these dishes in the sink. And it was just before I had, I could ever, I would ever sort of have any autonomy over the, the running of the house. Like, I, you know, in hindsight, I was like, well, do the dishes, you idiot. But like, I remember just thinking like, wow, the dishes haven't been done. That's so weird. And then a couple of days later, I find her in the shower and she's collapsed and she, you know, has told me that we need to go to hospital and, and we went to hospital and then she died three, about three weeks later, and she never left the hospital. And I squashed, well, I denied the impact that that had on me for a long time until I was well out of high school. You know, for the first five, for all of high school, because it happened in the very first term of year eight at, you know, Brisbane State High. And for the first five years of my life, until I left high school, I kind of just denied it. I was just, you know, I just put up a steel wall. I didn't want anyone to hurt me. I got into fights. I, you know, went to parties and drank and I just wanted to prove that nothing could hurt me. And that's not a thing that most people have to deal with in their no. life. And they don't usually have to deal with it at 12 years old. So sometimes I look back on my um, things and I get upset. Like I'm getting upset thinking about it now. It's, it's just a lot. It's a lot. And I feel like when I, have, when I had Sophia, I feel really sad at the thought of her having to go through something like that. It's like a real fear at the moment um, and a realisation that it just can happen to anyone. The book was, you know, again, I was writing it while my partner was pregnant and I put a whole new perspective on parenthood and it put me in a perspective of where my mum was and what it must be like to die with your kid just watching you die, you know. Um, and all the things that you must wish that you'd be able to see of their life, like it would just gut me so much if I didn't, if I couldn't see who my daughter became. And so, yeah, it's like it's 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 constantly tough, and it's always tough. And then and then you know when I when I'm writing the movie about it now, it's like, yeah, it's all there again, but it's still something because it because it means so much to me, and I'm so proud of it. It's a story that I keep wanting to tell, you know, and it's something that I'm super proud of. You should be so proud of it. And I think as as someone who has lived a, a version of the other side of that, um, 
you know, I, I have a laid in bed while my son was asleep and said goodbye a couple of times now and luckily come out the other side of brain cancer. But mm. um, the number of times I spent imagining what his life would be like and all the things I would miss and I felt feel that you've put some words around the experience of the child in that situation and there are so many parents who are unwell desperately trying to come to terms with what impact it's having on their kid and how to handle it and how to do it better and how to make the impossible easier. I'm not sure that is possible, but I think there's some real comfort that you've given given people in realising that even when a kid's not okay, they can be okay ultimately. Yeah, I think that that was what I kind of wanted to try and show is that like there's no right way to deal with these sort of situations and... I just, I, I, I would hope that a 12 year old me could have read this book and felt like just connected with it. That's all I would hope. Yeah. I look forward to giving it to my kid when he's old enough. <laughs> That's very nice. I hope so. Matt, what's next for you? What are you looking forward to? I think this episode we're recording it as the country is sort of opening up again and we're all pretending like things are normal again, even though it's really not. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to really forging a career in TV and storytelling and film, you know, working on the film of the book I'm excited about and, you know, moving into hopefully directing things one day so that I'm, I'm really across it all from the moment I have the idea right to the moment I sit down and watch it on TV so that it has my voice completely and uniquely throughout the whole way. And I think, you know, with when, when someone does that, you lose the... You know, when you do the jack of all trades thing, you lose the ability to get masters of every single step along the way. But I think ultimately I will come out with a product that I'm more proud of. You know, it might not reach the audiences that something, you know, like a blockbuster movie might get, but it'll still be something like like with my EP that I'll that'll sit on a shelf and at least I'll be proud of it. So I'm going to focus on trying to do that. Matt, it has been so lovely talking to you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks so much for having me. 